faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. The reason why I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's word, work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not giving to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught, so that he can encourage others by the sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're ruin, ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Credans are always lies, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith, and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. This is the word of the Lord. Today, I want to pose a question. How do we grow a gospel-driven church? What are the 11 secret ingredients to church growth? It's an age-old question that every church wants an answer. I walked into Kurong last week, and there's a shelf full of these books with fancy titles like Unlocking the Growth, Power Preaching for Church Growth, I Believe in Church Growth, Your Church is Too Small, Get ready, get set, and grow. How do we grow a gospel-driven church? Well, a good place to start is by defining what a gospel-driven church is. I think it's made up of people who've been saved by the gospel, living by the gospel, and spreading the gospel. Saved by the gospel, we're not talking about a membership list, not bums on seats on Sunday. But as we've seen in the past weeks, John puts it as people who've been born again, who've gained life and identity in Jesus. And they live by the gospel. The church makes decisions based on God's word, not on tradition, culture, worldly wisdom, or anything like that. And a gospel church is spreading the gospel. They're telling others about Jesus. So at SDBC... How do you think we're going in this? I hope we're a gospel-driven church. I hope we're striving to be like this. And that brings us to today's question. How do we grow a gospel-driven church? As we think about this topic, I reckon the best book to go to is God's Word. 
And as we begin this short series on Titus, I reckon this book and today's passage teaches us how to do this. Uh, if you like history, most scholars place this letter after Acts 28. Uh, Paul's freed from jail, he plants some churches in Crete, and he leaves this guy Titus to continue growing these churches. So as we explore today's passage, I'm going to point out three mind-blowing ways to grow a gospel-driven church. As I've discovered in Kurong, there's a ton of books on this topic, and there's also workshops and conferences you can go to where you pay some outrageous amount of money to learn about church growth. Uh, sometime last year, uh, I was sent to one of these inspiring conferences. We sat down, and the day got underway. The first thing we did was we watched this video about the guy who started this conference. And it must have been 5, 10, 15, maybe even 20 minutes of this video just following this keynote guy around the world, seeing him lap up the crowd and attention, telling us how awesome and smart he is and how he's got the secrets to church growth. And just to make sure that it wasn't just me, I looked to my left and to my right, and one unnamed pastor began reading his Kindle, and the other was immersed in words with friends. Well, what was this guy on about? I reckon this guy was on about himself, and this is totally opposite to how Paul introduces himself here. It's not Paul, the writer of 13 or 14 bestseller books included in scripture. It's none of that. It's Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus. That's who Paul is. And as we read on in verse 1, we find out what he's on about. To further the faith of God's elect, God's people, and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In other words, he's on about growing God's people by the gospel, by the saving message of Jesus. And this leads to godliness. And Paul goes on to expand this in verse 2 and 3. This is Paul's second longest introduction in all of his letters. Let me suggest to you today that Paul was on about Jesus. Verse 1, he's an apostle of Jesus. He's growing God's people. Verse 2, he's strengthening the hope of eternal life promised through the gospel. Verse 3, he's teaching, preaching, and evangelizing because of Jesus. Paul begins his letter by building his case. He's showing Titus that he's on about Jesus. So then, what are you on about? Would you consider yourself to be a servant of God, entrusted with the saving message of Jesus? Are you growing God's people into godliness by this message? Are you telling others about Jesus, our Lord and Savior? I have regularly asked this question myself, and I'll turn it on to you. When was the last time you were able to tell someone, to challenge, to teach, or encourage someone about the gospel? When was the last time? Was it yesterday, last week, last month, last year? Or maybe you can't remember at all. It's a good question to ask yourself regularly. So how do you grow a gospel-driven church? There's no secret formula. It starts with me and it starts with you. Be on about Jesus. I loved how last week, if you remember, 
Joel came on stage and he introduced himself. He said, I, Joel, a servant of God, in the name of Jesus Christ. I was listening to this and I was like, wow, this guy is on about Jesus. I mean, why else would you go to somewhere like Sydney? <laughs> Unless you've been called that way. I got an email this week from Gary Weston in Japan as I was preparing. And he showed me an awesome result of being on about Jesus. He says in his email, he says, As you know, Asuko Hironagi, who's my homestay mom three years ago, four years ago, was baptized last Sunday. And that's really awesome news. She says, she says in her testimony that you taught her John 14.6. Apparently that was a significant help, a milestone. God used you, brother. Way to go. This Japanese lady was somehow convicted about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. Just because on that morning, luckily, I was on about Jesus. And God used that for his glory. Let's think of Sunday today at church. When you talk to people before or after the service, are you on about Jesus? I'm guilty of this. Sometimes I don't even get to talk to people. And when I do, it's either about sport, what's for lunch, or just whinging about things in general. But there's a massive silence about how I'm challenged by Jesus, about my struggles in living for Jesus, and asking others how they're going in their walks with Jesus. At home, at work, are you on about Jesus? When you go to life group, when you serve, are you on about Jesus? If not, then what are you on about? To grow a gospel-driven church, the first step is for you and me to be on about Jesus. Now for the second step, we need to ask this question, what are our leaders on about? Not just our elders, as this passage talks about, but the whole lot, our pastors, our directors, our ministry leaders, what are they on about? These are the guys who are leading us, teaching us, and growing us. What are they on about? The next passage, as we read on, is definitely aimed at elders. We've got eight, 11 including pastors. But this section isn't just for these 11 guys. It's for all of us, for these following reasons. Firstly, it's for the church to understand what to look for in elders. When they come for election or re-election, we need to know what to look for. And thinking about their responsibilities, what their role is, and if they're doing their role. Second is for us as a church to pray better for our elders. Thirdly, it's for those who aspire to be elders. I know there's people here who are just pure gold, who could bring so much positive effect to this church. And there's others here who are growing up, and they may desire to be elders in the future. And fourthly, it's for anyone who's in any kind of leadership. Even if you're not an elder, I'd imagine this applies for anyone in any sort of leadership role in the church. If I had to choose leaders, these are the kinds of people I'd like to have. So what are our leaders on about? I think this is what Paul writes about in verses 5 to 9. Verse 5, it says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Just to give some quick background, uh, churches as we know them today 
only came about after 3-400 AD. So in the context of this letter, we need to know uh, that Christians gathered not in public buildings like this, but in people's houses. So a few families would get together at someone's house and they'd do what we call church. So church and family life were very interlinked. And I think this is one reason why verse 6 to 8 really zooms in to the household and the family life as requirements for elders. The overarching requirement here is for elders to be blameless. We read it twice, verse 6, an elder must be blameless. And again in verse 7, since an overseer or elder manages God's household, he must be blameless. It sounds like a big ask, but note that it doesn't mean to be faultless or perfect, or else we might as well tell all our elders to pack our bags and go home. The Greek word translates to mean unaccused. It's more talking about integrity and uprightness. They're not open to blame for deliberate or blatant sin. And here Paul talks about elders in three areas. The first is the home. An elder's or leader's home is a home that others can look at and say, this is a home that's an example of Jesus. This is Christ living in a home. He's a one-woman man. His family is led in godliness. And the kids in his home are growing in Christ. This verse, in verse 6, it seems to trip people up with this requirement of children being believers. I haven't had time to look into this deeply, but uh, these are some of my observations. Uh, first, uh, if you have a good Bible, there's a footnote that says, uh, believers can be translated to mean that the children must be trustworthy or faithful kids. They're, they've been raised in godliness. Uh, second, uh, the Greek word used here for children refers to children in the home and under the parent's authority. And third, I think we need to understand the context in Crete. Uh, it's a place that's filled with ungodly people. It's kind of like Sydney. Uh, Titus needs elders who are clear examples of Christ through their families. The second area of elders is their character. An elder or a leader uh, is a person where you can look to him and say, this guy, his character is an example of Jesus. He's not worldly. He's not there for self-gain, whether it's power, fame, or status. He's not there for the money because there's no money in it anyway. He's the kind of guy that you can look up to and say, yep, he's a man of God. He lives and breathes Christ. The third area is their theology or their teaching. An elder or leader is a person who you can learn from and say, I trust this guy to teach me about Jesus. Verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught. Why? So that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Elders don't need to be in the pulpit, but they need to be teaching others in some way, shape, or form. They need to know the gospel well enough to both teach and refute, to grow and to admonish, to build up, but also to protect. They need to be able to see error, false and unhelpful teaching, and then to be able to correct them and point them back to the gospel. So, 
What are our leaders on about? What kind of leaders do we need? How do we grow a gospel-driven church? To summarize all these three areas, we need leaders who are on about Jesus. Not just our elders, but all of our leaders, our directors, our ministry leaders, from our kids' church leaders to our care team leaders. They're on about Jesus in their family lives, their character, their teaching. We need leaders and elders who are on about Jesus. So, are our elders on about Jesus? Do they live as examples of Christ? Have they been encouraging and growing you through the gospel? This isn't something that we can just assume or hope for. We need to seriously consider this because the growth of God's church here at Sunnybank is at stake. Are our leaders on about Jesus? If you're a parent, you, don't, you wouldn't want a Sunday school helper who's not on about Jesus trying to teach your kids about Jesus. You don't want youth leaders who aren't on about Jesus teaching your teens about Jesus. You wouldn't want life group leaders, service leaders, elders, preachers who aren't on about Jesus trying to lead you supposedly into Jesus. Are our leaders and elders on about Jesus? Let's take a more positive challenge also on this point. To grow a gospel-driven church, we also need to grow our leaders. Are we growing leaders and potential elders who are on about Jesus? There's good kids coming up in kids' church, in youth and young adults, that we need to make sure that they are on about Jesus. So if you see these kids, these guys, it's our responsibility as a church to get beside them, to grow them, and then one day let them lead us and grow us in Christ. Maybe you're already a leader. This is a good reminder to check if these areas in your life are on about Jesus. Is your family life, is your character, your teaching, is it all pointing to Jesus? Ask yourself, ask someone that you trust. To grow a gospel-driven church, step two is to have leaders and elders who are on about Jesus. Doing this is crucial for the growth of the church. And we see why Paul talks about elders as we keep reading on to verse 10. I reckon this verse, verse 10, gives us the reason why Paul writes this whole letter to Titus. We might ask the question, why is Paul's greeting, verse 1 to 4, all about growing in truths of the gospel? Why, in verse 5 to 9, does Paul talk about elders? It's because of this, verse 10. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. There's a whole bunch of bad teaching going on, and Paul wants this whole situation in Crete resolved. You know, bad teaching, it's not something that just can be accepted or tolerated or even just ignored under the carpet. Whether it's in our preaching, our songs, our studies, our talks, whatever it may be, it slowly destroys the church and the faith of the people. I think there's two main forms of destructive teaching that goes around. The first is what I'd call minus gospel. It's probably the most common destructive teaching. 
basically sees the gospel as some good advice, like a fridge of goodies. Basic, um, it also sees Jesus as a good bloke, someone that just says some good things. It's just about having a spiritual experience and nothing all. It has no reference or no centrality in what Christ has done for us. And if we put on this minus gospel teaching, we stop living like Jesus. We stop being a gospel church. The second destructive teaching is gospel plus. It's when we become legalistic and other things become as important or more important than the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is what Titus is dealing with in Crete. There's this group called the Circumcision Party that was wrecking havoc in the whole church. And this is what they were saying. Believing in Jesus, it isn't enough to become a Christian. Actually, you need to obey these regulations, circumcision, ceremonial laws, and food laws, for instance. And by the way, look at us. We do all this stuff. We're good Christians. Paul gives us also a look into what they do. Verse 11, they disrupt and they do things for their own gain. Verse 15, they're corrupt, they're disobedient, detestable, and they don't believe. These false teachers, they're completely opposite to the elders that we looked at previously. Elders are to be an example of Jesus. These guys deny him by their actions, verse 16. Elders teach the truth that Jesus alone saves us. These guys, they corrupt and they twist the truth. They don't believe that the work of Christ is enough to save us. And they were slowly infecting and destroying the church. Paul says to Titus and the elders, silence them, rebuke them sharply. Verse 13 and 14. He's making sure that the church is on about Jesus. So, how do we grow a gospel-driven church? The, ch the third step is to make sure the church is on about Jesus. This time, we're not talking about individuals or leaders. We're talking about the teaching that's going on around the place. Whose role is it to confront these false teachings? I think Paul wants the elders to do this, the leaders of the church. It's no coincidence that in verse 9, Elders are called to stop bad teaching. From the teaching that happens on Sunday through the songs and the sermon to the various talks, studies, and devotions that are done within the church. And they need to make sure that the church as a whole is on about Jesus. What about all of us uh, who aren't leaders, we're not elders? What's our role? I think we all need to be alert also and on guard against false teaching. If you think there's false teaching going on, go talk to the person. Go talk to your leaders. Don't let it go under the radar. Churches are destroyed when false teaching grows undetected, when it's tolerated and slowly infects the church. For example, let's imagine for a second, if I slip up, in the next 10 minutes and say something like the work of Christ isn't enough to save us, which is, by the way, not what I'm suggesting at all, I'd expect after the service up the front for a line, all of you in ready, ready to rebuke me, to 
to lay hands on me, throw stones at me, and to pray earnestly for my salvation. Let's use another example. Just imagine there's a particular small group in our church that begins to push the food laws on top of the work of Christ. No pork, no bacon, no prawns, crab, lobster, none of that good stuff. It wouldn't be a very popular group. Maybe half the group doesn't agree and half the group agrees. It causes disruption. But they're not bothered to raise it as an issue. So half the group, they begin to tell others in the church. They begin to influence others and disrupt others. Still, the leadership doesn't know. It's affecting 5, 10, 15, 20 people's understandings of what Christ has done for them. And it continues to spread through the church, influencing or disruptive, disrupting. Even if it stumbles one person, it's already done its damage. This doesn't grow a church. It destroys and tears down people's faith. It was important in Paul's time for the churches to be on about Jesus. And nothing's changed about this over the past 2,000 years. I'll be slaving away this week, starting and finishing my church history essay on Luther. And this is exactly what he did too. He's making sure the church is on about Jesus. We may not have a circumcision party or anyone banging that particular drum, but there's teaching today that can lead the church and its people away from Christ. It could be plus gospel, Jesus and something else, some other teaching, some other sign, or it could be minus gospel, no Jesus required. These teachings can rip apart people's understandings of faith in Christ alone for salvation. And as a church who's on about Jesus, we need to make sure that this is exactly what we teach. So, how do you grow a gospel-driven church? Firstly, be on about Jesus. What are you on about in your life? What's the driving force behind everything you say and do? If we're really serious about this, then let's be on about Jesus today. After the service, don't talk about the sport first up, how Liverpool won for once last night. Ask someone how their walks with Christ have been or ask what they've been learning through God's word about Jesus. Secondly, we need elders, leaders who are on about Jesus. Are our leaders on about Jesus? Are these guys an example of Jesus and their family and their personal lives? Do they teach and challenge you about what Christ has done for you? Are we actively identifying and growing these kinds of leaders in our church? Let's make it a priority to pray for our elders and our leaders here at SDBC. And let's encourage our leaders to grow in their love of Christ. And thirdly, we need to make sure that the church, SDBC, is on about Jesus. What is our church on about? We have this brilliant mission statement, working with God in transforming people to be passionate followers of Jesus. Let's make sure that we're teaching the saving message of Jesus, that his work on the cross alone is sufficient for our salvation. 
on Sundays, in our songs, in our sermons, our spots after and before the service, during the week, in our small groups, our ministries, our catch-ups, and so forth. If there's any teaching that's not about Jesus here, let's make sure that we're onto it straight away. We need to make sure that the church is on about Jesus. I don't know about you, but I love this church. I've been here for 17 years, and there's great people here. There's so much potential for this church to grow, to reach out to the community, and for people to come here, to come to Jesus, and be saved through him. But are we growing? Are we gospel-driven? I hope that's what you want too, for this church to grow, for people to come to Christ, and for all of us to keep growing in Christ. How to grow a gospel-driven church. Be on about Jesus. Have elders and leaders who are on about Jesus. And make sure the church as a whole is on about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you that uh, you want us to come to you uh, to be your children, to be your people. Lord, your desire is for our church is to see people saved through your son, to live for Jesus, and to share the saving message with those around us. Lord, I pray that you'll give us this vision, that you'll help each and every one of us to be so convicted and passionate about what you've done for us so that we can live and breathe Jesus in all we say and do. Lord, I pray that you help us as a church to teach your saving message both earnestly and faithfully. Grow our leaders to be examples of Christ for all of us. Help them to point us to Christ. And Lord, for all of us, I pray that you'll captivate us by the love that you've shown us in Christ so that we can declare him in our lives. Lord, we do this for your glory and for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.